the Bain Free Radio Hour. On this week's podcast, Sam Kennedy, cover artist for Bain novels by John F. Murs, Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, Charles Gannon, and more. Plus, part 42 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. Glad you're listening. It's an honor to have you along. I'm contributing editor Gray Reinhardt, sitting in for Bain editor Tony Daniel. Artist Sam Kennedy joins us today to talk about the process of creating colorful and dynamic cover art for Bain books. And we also continue our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. But first, the news. I like doing a little This Week in History for the news, even though it's primarily famous birthdays this week. In literary history, this week in 1882, the English author A.A. Milne was born. While he's best known for creating Winnie the Pooh, it's interesting to note that one of his teachers at the Henley House School was H.G. Wells. In addition, Milne played amateur cricket on the same team as authors J.M. Barrie and Arthur Conan Doyle. So he has some genre credit. But in terms of genre history birthdays, this week is astounding. Some of our listeners may already have seen various social media posts about Edgar Allan Poe's birthday. He was born on the 19th of January in 1809. Well, almost a hundred years later, this week in 1906, Robert E. Howard was born. Just as Poe is regarded as the inventor of detective fiction, Howard is known as the father of sword and sorcery, since he created the character Conan the Barbarian. Several award-winning authors were also born during this week in history, including Robert Anton Wilson, winner of the 1986 Prometheus Hall of Fame Award for Science Fiction, Nancy Cress, multiple Hugo and Nebula-winning short fiction author, and Hugo and Nebula Award winner David Gerald, who may be best known for writing the script for the original Star Trek episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. And fans of fantasy wargaming and a particular science fiction franchise may want to note that Forgotten Realms and Star Wars The New Jedi Order author R.A. Salvatore was also born this week in history. Happy birthday, one and all. In Bain news, a reminder that our January mass market paperback releases are out. You'll find Tom Crapman's Come and Take Them, the fifth novel in the Carrera series, Reich Spohr's Spheres of Influence, the sequel to Grand Central Arena, and The Worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs Anthology, edited by Mike Resnick and Robert Garcia. They are available at booksellers everywhere. We're here today with one of Bain's artists, Sam Kennedy. Sam graduated from Brigham Young University in 1998 with a degree, so rumor has it, in nuclear physics. But after studying the cosmic grandeur of the universe, Sam thought he would try his hand at painting and immediately found success in the video game industry. He's been an animator as well as a concept artist for such well-known video games as Medal of Honor, Allied Assault, Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon, and Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six. He's also a freelance illustrator who has created covers, interior artwork, and advertisement for PC Gamer, Xbox Magazine, Disney's Kingdom Keepers series, National Geographic, and more including, most importantly for our purposes, Bain Books. In 2013, Sam published his own book entitled 
How to Become a Video Game Artist, The Insider's Guide to Landing a Job in the Gaming World. Sam, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Gray. It's very flattering that you asked me on. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I hope half of what I say is truthful, and uh, <laughs> I, but I can't promise anything more than half. Okay. Well, in light of that, and, and all joking aside, I presume that you actually studied some type of art at BYU as opposed to nuclear physics. Uh, is that right? <laughs> uh, that is right. Uh, I, uh, but uh, I originally signed on um, as a film major, and uh, I, I started off as a film major, and they had a pretty good film program. And I went over to the fine art department and started taking a few painting and drawing classes over there. And I just, you know, I wasn't learning anything. And, and, uh, and then a couple years after I was in, into the program, I started thinking, hmm, maybe film isn't the right thing for me. And I walked into a building that taught illustration. And I had such a different experience from uh, my fine art classes, uh, I was in a, a building and, and, a, and uh, a place where they actually taught you how to draw and they taught you, you know, correct proportions. And it just, it was, I loved it. I loved it. And I, I couldn't get enough of it. I knew from that moment, that's what I wanted to do the rest of my life. Well, that's great. And I guess my question to follow on to that is, at that time, did you have it in mind to do book covers specifically, or had you thought about what you would do with the art? Well, what was unique and special about uh, discovering that, that program was that they taught you that you could make a living as an artist. And growing up in a small town in Pennsylvania, I never knew that. And so as I, as I started to get involved, started to take classes, you know, we learned about the different types of illustrators there were. There were editorial illustrators and, and book illustrators. And at that time, I was just trying to learn. I didn't know what I was going to end up doing. And uh, I, I, you know, most of my career has been a surprise, to be honest. I guess maybe the one thing I, I did... One thing that didn't come as a surprise was, was the book illustration. I love books. I love to read, and I, you know, I, love, uh, I love Bane books. You guys have some of my favorite authors, hands down, uh, working today. And it's just, that I, maybe that's the one thing that, that doesn't come as a surprise, that I ended up you know, being a book illustrator. Well, from that standpoint of... Loving books, just for Bane books, you've done uh, fantasy covers, you've done science fiction covers, and I guess the question is, do you have a preference? That's a good question. Again, this kind of surprised me too. I like fantasy. Uh, I have always liked Lord of the Rings, and uh, I read the, the Wheel of Time series, and, and I've read a lot of fantasy but I hadn't really read a lot of science fiction until I started working for Bain. And then I started reading these science fiction, and it seems to me that I've, I've illustrated more science fiction than I have uh, fantasy, and so my, my preferences have kind of flip-flopped a little bit. When I go and, and look for a new book series, I, you know, I, I check out the science fiction first. Um, I don't know why that's happened, um, but it just it's just kind of one of those things that's happened in life. That's interesting because for the the publishing industry in general, it seems that of late fantasy has uh, supplanted science fiction in most bookstores. I think the fantasy section is bigger than the science fiction section, but I consider it good news that uh, by reading some of our science fiction, 
novels that you have uh, have had your eyes open to that part of the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think I think most of us, you know, growing up in the eighties and and the seventies and nineties, you know, are are what we thought of as science fiction is Star Trek and Star Wars, and and of course there's a place for that, but there's also a place for uh, for the book series where you know you can uh, you can uh, be this uh, mech soldier, you know, or a, a Star Force soldier on an alien world, and and the author not only does you know you get to be this this soldier kind of in this outer space, but he's also doing world building. I like to play games. I like to play strategy games where you uh, you kind of have to build your own civilization and build up your armies to fight. And I think that's that's the same itch that uh, a lot of these science fiction books uh, scratch today. It's that that idea of you're being on the frontier. You have to create your own economy, your own you know society, and it's it's really kind of fun to read through. You know, some of the series where the authors just do a really good job of that. Well, and I think that our authors do a really good job of that, and it's good that you are enjoying that as you're preparing to do the covers for them. World building is obviously, as you say, a tremendous part of good science fiction uh, because we want to be put in the midst of this strange world and learn how to, to make our way around in it and, and figure out what's going on there. And I, it seems to me that, in a way, world building is an important element of depicting what's in the story on the cover of the book. And that leads me to the question of how do you decide what to put in a cover illustration? I mean, how much freedom do you have in choosing what you're going to produce versus, uh, say, art direction? Mm -hmm. I, that's a great question. I, uh, I read through a manuscript first and, uh, and then try, you know, myself, my own inclinations a lot of times are to do the most action. You know, to really kind of find the the action, the, the height of the action of the book. And uh, once I read through a book and discover that, I do uh, three, four, sometimes five sketches, and I send them to the art director, and uh, I'll give her a, a couple of action choices, but then I'll also say, well, it's so much work to do all that action, maybe... Maybe she'll just let me do a single character head. <laughs> and I always submit those as well, thinking, oh, she just picks this one. I won't have to do so much work. Funny, I don't see that happening very often. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's, it's the action one, and I think both of us are happier, you know, at the end with that. As I, as I walk through the bookstore and look through covers, you know, I find that action is kind of what, you know, grabs me. And I try to work in enough of an environment to make it look, you know, to do a little world building myself. I think, I think if, you know, if uh, the viewer can look at the, pick up this book and look at the cover and see not only that there's going to be some good action in it, but that also maybe there's some, it's in a strange new world. I think that creates more appeal and attracts the reader faster than um, than one and not the other. Well, I can see that. Now, but when you're trying to figure out what action to depict, you know, are you trying to illustrate, say, a particular scene from the book, or are you trying to develop a more a more general illustration that represents the book as a whole? It's probably a little bit of both. I try to base what I depict on something that happened, but I don't necessarily stay exactly accurate to what the author describes or what they don't des describe. Because sometimes, you know, when they're, when they're describing 
something, you know, they may be leaving out details or they may be describing it from, from a character's point of view, and it may make more sense to paint the action from a different point of view or to um, maybe merge two events together, you know, speed up. You know, maybe at one point this spaceship fires a missile and, and the guy, you know, gets undercover before the missile hits. But if I can paint that guy leaping for cover just as the missile hits, you know, it tends to be a little bit more um, exciting. I would agree with that. Now, I'm always interested in sort of the creative process that uh, folks go through, whether it's, you know, talking to writers and how they develop what they do, or musicians and how they put their songs together. From an artist's standpoint, when you are trying to depict action as well as to put in some, some world building, do you produce all of this just out of your imagination? Or do you have, uh, say, models that you ask to pose for you for particular things? Or do you work with uh, sculpture or physical models in some way? I'm just trying to get an idea of how it goes from the general concept to the actual image we see. Well, again, a little bit about my my history is kind of... Um, it's kind of telling. Uh, when I finally discovered the illustration program and started to go through it, I was not as... I, I just don't feel like I was as talented as some of the other as some of the other students. I also have trouble sitting still for a long time. So I, I know a lot, of, a lot of illustrators, they will hand paint everything. And uh, having come from the video game industry uh, where we, we hand-painted some stuff, but we also used 3D models, when I started to do book illustration, using 3D models came very natural to me. And so today, once I get a thumbnail out, and I'll usually do that on paper, then I will, I will either look for models of spaceships or buildings or I will model them myself if I think it's going to be more interesting to, to, you know, build something entirely new. And then I will use those as assets to, to put into Photoshop, to put into my painting. And, and most of the time, they will be kind of a, um, a jumping-off point so that I can, you know, if I find a character or a, a building that I think looks very similar to what I want, I will put it into a 3D modeling package, light it and render it, put it in the Photoshop, and then I will paint over that. And it seems to save me time to do it that way. And again, I'm, I have so much trouble sitting still that it, it usually shortens the work time down enough that I can really get at an illustration in very little time and hopefully nail it before I lose interest, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, it does, because you want to be able to, to maintain uh, a workflow, and if you're excited about it, I think that can come through in the final product. Whereas if you get bored by it, you may not produce uh, work that is as dynamic as what you're trying to produce. Right. And every, every image that I do, I get so excited about. I'm so into that image that, you know, my, my ultimate goal is for me to just imagine something in my head and for it to appear on the monitor the way I imagine it. I just want to direct my micro-robots. I want my nanobots to take what's in my head and just build it for me. <laughs> I just want to do that without lifting a finger. But until that, until that time comes, I'll be using every method I can 
to to make the work better, to make it more exciting, and to just shorten that that process. Well, I think if you figure out how to do that, um, you you may not have to do much painting anymore, but uh, <laughs> but that would be our loss, I think. One of the things that I found characterizes your work is the vivid colors that you use, and oftentimes you'll have a very vivid color in contrast to a more muted background, and it really makes the thing stand out, and it makes it very powerful. Um, Now, is that something that you find you can do easier by primarily working with the with the digital programs like you you've mentioned or is did that actually come from the more uh, traditional painting background mm. I think color is, is is one thing um that I may I may have been born with um I think Having a sense of color is something that uh, I was just, you know, I remember telling you that I wasn't as good as maybe some of the other, I wasn't as talented as some of the other students. I couldn't draw as well. I couldn't light as well. But I could always do color very, very well. And so I don't know where that comes from other than, you know, maybe that's that's one natural gift that I have and everything else I've worked for. But yeah, I think you know I do I do try to mute colors in the background a little bit because of the way atmospheric perspective works. When we look out and we see a long distance, uh, flowers that we see long far away aren't going to be as bright as the colors you know we see close to us. And so I, I try to use color very close to the camera, you know, as a way of keeping the focus where I want it to be. Well, that makes a lot of sense. When I was looking at your your website and some of the cover images that you have on there, both ours and others that you've done, uh, one of them stood out to me because it seemed very similar to a Frank Frazetta painting that I remember from a long time ago called The Silver Warrior. And I wondered... Is he one of your artistic influences, or who would you say has influenced your art? Certainly, Frank Frazetta uh, was uh, was influenced, and you know it's it's hard to uh, boy, it's hard to say what it's hard to talk about him because he is such a um, there's something about his artwork that's so inspirational and it's so. Monumental. I mean, in some ways, I feel you know, looking at a Frazetta is like watching Michael Jordan play basketball. You know, there's only so many greats that come along in the world, and and I feel like Frazetta was definitely one of those greats who just, you know, everything kind of you know jumped, you know, jumped out for him, and and he was just so awesome. But uh, I remember I first saw his uh, his stuff while I was in college. And I just, you know, I just picked up one of his books and I just said, "Wow, this is this is phenomenal." Uh, someday I want to do this because it was so full of action. But uh, I guess another large influence for me are comic book artists. The the comic book artists that are are you know drawing today and maybe the, some of the ones that drew while I was growing up. I've always admired their ability to to draw out a figure to make them uh, you know to make to make good looking men and women. It's something that definitely drives me. You know, I really like that. I really like the human figure in in its ability to move and and just it's so graceful and it's so magnificent. Now that you mention comic books as an influence. I can see how that works with your art in terms of the the dynamism, if you will, in terms of, again, trying to depict action, trying to depict motion, but in a, a still frame. That's something that 
comics do very, very well. And I, I would say that that's translated well to uh, the work that you've done. Oh, good, good. Um, you know, it's, it's, when I was a little kid, I used to pray that I could be Superman <laughs> or Spider-Man. I just, I just wanted to move uh, like they did in the comic books. And, uh, you know, I think being an animator and being an illustrator, uh, for me, is, uh, is kind of the answer to that. It's kind of, you know, that's how I fulfilled those, those wishes, those desires. You know, every time I paint a picture of somebody dodging a bullet or, or being in a fight, you know, I think, wow, that could be me. <laughs> you know, they're bulletproof and uh, they can move like Batman. And that, that always gives me a, a kind of a, a fun thrill to, you know, just think, ooh, this could be me. Well, I think that's great. The fact that you bring to it uh, a sense of joy, a sense of fun, um, I think that really comes through. One of the things that uh, I noticed on your website is that in addition to the book that you wrote and and released, uh, you also have an online course called Master the Techniques of Rapid Illustration. So it seems that you are... Uh, you're willing to share the lessons that you've learned, and I think that's great, and wondered if you would like to uh, tell our audience something about that. You know, as we've said so far, I think using every tool available to get an illustration done is, is fair game. I don't think that tools in and of themselves make a good illustration. What really makes a good illustration is kind of some of the things we've been talking about. Is there, is there action? Is there uh, a world, a unique world depicted? And, uh, and so some of the methods that I, that I use and some of the methods that I talk about in, in this course is to use 3D models, is to use photographs, is to use uh, assets that have already made. In Photoshop, you can create a brush that does clouds. And so, you know, I have those brushes, and whenever I need to paint clouds, I'll, I'll pull those out. Or if I have a, you know, if I'm outside someday and I see a great sky and I take a photo of that sky, then that may be, you know, the sky that shows up in my next painting. Um, because it's there, it works, and it's, and it's ready to go, and, and I'm going to save myself a couple hours uh, by using the sky that, that God made as opposed to trying to duplicate, you know, uh, a sky that's, that's already been out there. In my course, uh, which is available through uh, Artsy, it's it just kind of goes through my process of, of how I think about taking a figure from start to finish. I talk about um, where I get 3D models and when I use them and when I model my own stuff and... Uh, when I might use a photo, and I think in that series of videos, I even discover while I'm teaching, it ran for about five weeks, but during that five weeks, I was even discovering new software that I now use on a regular basis, and so I'll make mention of that and, and talk about some of what I'm learning in that series, because it's still important to learn, you know, even as I am going through uh, the uh, creating images, um, I am still learning. I'm still, I'm still trying to get better, uh, not only at depicting things, but also better craft sense. I'm trying to, uh, do, like I said, doing things faster, um, but doing things better, too. As a, as a personal um, philosophy, I, be, I believe that illustration and art is something that can be taught. And uh, even though while I was growing up, you know, I didn't know that you could make a living as an artist, as, I've, as I have done that, I've learned that most of this stuff can be learned. Some artists get a few natural talents. Like, uh, I feel like I was good with action and good with color, but I've had to work at a lot of other aspects of it. And I think most, it's like that for most artists. 
I think, uh, you know, many artists are just you know, either, either good with lighting or good with color, but they're not good with both. My personal philosophy is anybody can learn to do this. Well, that's great, and I think that um, it's great that you have put together both your book and your course to help folks uh, learn to develop those skills that they may not be particularly gifted in. Yeah, and that's what the book was really about. It was about trying to give kids the education, enough education to know that, you know, this is what you need to do and that you can do it. And it's mostly, I think what it is mostly, Greg, is you've got to love to do it. I think if you love it more than, you know, playing sports, more than, you know, playing video games or, or more than anything else, you know, I think that's where you're going to spend your time. And if that's where you want to spend your time, that's what you love doing, and I think you'll be very successful at it. Well, I'm sure your uh, students will benefit a lot from that course. So, uh, Sam, what are you working on right now? Well, uh, right now I am doing a new cover for Bane. It is uh, by Frank Chadwick. It's his uh, next book coming out. Uh, and uh, that should be done in a few days. And I will... See what happens after that. And uh, how can fans find out more about what you're up to? I think you could uh, go to my website or go to my Facebook page. Um, I tweet occasionally. Uh, so uh, my work, I'm out there on a lot of uh, a lot of social sites. Uh, I make occasional appearances uh, on them, and you know, let everyone know. I certainly try to put as much artwork up there as I can. And, uh, you know, I'm always dropping in to say hi, hi to people. And uh, that's, uh, that's, I guess, how they can get a hold of me if they want to say hi. Well, we appreciate you dropping in to say hi to us during the podcast. And, uh, folks, uh, Sam's website is www.samrkennedyart, all one word, Dot com. So, Sam, thanks again for being with us on the podcast today. You're very welcome. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate being here. And now, here is part 42 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com. And if you're not already an Audible subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free when you try Audible free for 30 days. Or you can choose from more than 100,000 other titles. But we think you should select Hard Magic. If you're just joining us, it's the 1930s in America, but it's a quite different America than our history books describe. In the 1860s, magical abilities manifested in a small number of people from all walks of life. And in each generation since, more and more people have developed magical talents. They are called actives, and most actives use their powers for good, but not all of them. Jake Sullivan is an active, known as a heavy because he can control the force of gravity, a talent he has developed very highly over the years. He's a former soldier, an ex-con, and now a private eye who was recruited into a secret organization of actives known as the Grimnoir Knights. The Knights are the good guys and the rest of humanity needs their help because the evil forces of magic are about to unleash a magic-based apocalypse. Here is Bronson Pinchot with Part 42 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic.
Chapter 18 Among the many misdeeds of the British rule in India, history will look upon the act of depriving a whole nation of magic as the blackest. Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, 1930 Mar Pacifica, California Sullivan did not know how much time had passed in the dark. Delilah's body was cold next to him. Her blood coated him and had dried, sticky on his hands, clotted and pulling at his arm hair. But he would not leave her side. He only partly heard the others over the crash of the ocean. Someone had come to speak to him, but the words had been uncertain, his memory vague. Browning was coughing, dying. Dan was getting worse, but there was nothing he could do about it. He was useless. Maddie had been right. He was weak. No longer distracted with trying to protect the others, his mind turned inward, focusing on his own pain. He'd broken super-hardened bones, torn flesh, bruised muscles, yet the magic design on his chest had managed to keep up. It had burned power to keep him alive. Even now he could feel the hot itch as his body mended itself far faster than normal. But why hadn't it worked on Delilah? He moved back and forth between wakefulness and fitful sleep. His dreams were terrible, and he relived Delilah's wounding over and over. He saw the assassin's steel wrench out of her body, and he questioned what he could have done differently, what he could have done better. If only he'd been quicker, faster, stronger, smarter, anything. If he'd been able to defeat the greater summoned faster, then she would never have come down to help. And he drifted off, hating himself for not accomplishing something that whole squads of actives had failed at during the Great War. He awoke once to the noise of chattering teeth and talking. Francis had tried to swim for it when the tide had gone out, only to find that more of the cave had collapsed toward the entrance and he couldn't squeeze through. He'd nearly drowned, and surely would have if he'd gone earlier. There was some talk about Fay and Heinrich disappearing after trying something stupid, but he tuned it out and went back to his stupor. They were dead, too, and that was probably his doing as well. Damaged goods, Delilah told him in his sleep. You understood me, Jake. You were the only one. Sullivan found himself walking along the top of a trench at second sum, the power visible around him in the land where the dead went to dream. He knelt in the dirt and studied the mysterious being and the geometric patterns that made up its body. It eluded him. There was no way to bring her back. The chairman was there, reclining on a throne made of barbed wire and human bones, he did not mock Sullivan. He understood such pain. Delilah was dead, and it was his fault. The dreams told him that he deserved to die for his mistakes. He deserved to be the corpse, not her. The chairman told him that ritual suicide was the appropriate response for such weakness, for such total failure. At one point he awoke with his pistol in hand, the safety off, the muzzle pressed against his temple. No. Not like that, never like that. He unloaded the 1921 before putting it back in the holster. You don't even have the balls to do that right, his brother's voice whispered in his ear. Delilah's ghost came to him once. She didn't speak, she just pointed at him, accusing him, and after a while it faded, but the afterimage swam on inside his eyelids. He had not realized how much damage he had taken in the fight. He knew that he was hallucinating, but he could actually feel his skull mending from where Maddie's fists had left it cracked and his brain swollen. They'd lain together. Was it last night? The night before? Weeks? Just like back in New Orleans where he'd saved her from herself until he'd thrown that all away for a moment of stupid charity trying to protect some kid he didn't even know. There had been letters he'd written her from Rockville, but he'd never gotten a response. Not a single one. He didn't know if he'd ever have worked up the courage to ask her why, but it didn't matter now. She was lost forever. 
dead in a cold black hole, her spirit surely stuck between hell and the Pacific Ocean. Back in the land where the dead dreamed, he watched the power. It had surely fed well when Delilah had died. The power made a certain kind of sense. The day of the second sum it had feasted, growing fat, and he knew that with the deaths of all those strong actives, thousands more of the children born on that terrible day in 1918 had been born with the gifts, farmed from his dead friends and enemies. The new actives, teenagers now, had it really been that long? They too would increase their power until they died and the cycle continued until... Until what? Until everyone in the world had magic? He wondered where the power had come from. It certainly had not been born on this world. The chairman had said it came from someplace else. It was pursued, the chairman said from behind him, chased from the other place. We are its refuge. We are its hope. Sullivan did not bother to turn. He knew that this was not another dream of a swollen and fevered brain. His enemy was actually speaking to him from the other side of the world. He was glad for the company. Why are you telling me this? Sullivan asked. Because you impress me. Because there are very few people that I can discuss such things with who would understand. And these things I tell you will give you no advantage in your struggle against me. The chairman stopped beside him. Today he was dressed in an elaborate military uniform, resplendent with braids and medals and gold. The only thing that was not flashy was the well-used sword at his side. It was remarkably utilitarian. The chairman saw Sullivan taking in the flash. I was at a parade, he explained. As I was saying, it fled its old world as it fled the one before that. You are correct, Mr. Sullivan. It feeds on us. It needs us. And we need it. We increase it. But as we grow dependent upon it, we must also defend it from the thing that preys upon it and has pursued it across the stars. What's it running from? The chairman's expression seems sincere. When the enemy comes, you will know. The power wants me to cleanse this world of weakness. Only the strong will be able to defeat the enemy. If the world is not ready to stand before the enemy, the power will flee, and the enemy will consume us all in its hunger. Then the cycle will begin anew. He was in no mood for the chairman's bogus religion. Sounds like a load of bunk. Why didn't the hailing spell work? This... I will not tell you. You have chosen to stand in my way. It would be folly for me to help you become stronger. Sullivan turned back to the power. The mystery of his failure taunted him. The chairman cleared his throat. I will tell you this. When one is so very close to death, they have to want to come back. Perhaps your lady believed she would be happier in the next place. He nodded slightly. Every moment of Delilah's life had been an uphill fight. From her drunken, abusive father to her miserable, poor upbringing to a life on the streets to petty crime abandoned by everyone she'd ever loved, she'd had to fight for every scrap that had fallen from life's table. Maybe he was right. Maybe she'd gotten to the end and saw something on the other side that was better. She'd sure earned it. Thank you, chairman. The leader of the Imperium gave a slight bow. You are welcome, Mr. Sullivan. He spat on the ground. But I'm still going to kill you. I swear to God Almighty, I will. I'll kill you and every fool that follows you, including my own brother, for Delilah and every other decent person you've ever hurt. I would expect no less. I look forward to our meeting. Sullivan awoke in the tiny sea cave. There was an excited commotion from the other side as a brilliant light scalded his eyes. Fay had returned somehow. 
His body ached from the damp, but his injuries were mostly healed. His head was clear for the first time. If he could not live for the future, he could live for revenge. He knew exactly what he had to do. If he lived long, there would be time for grief in the future, but now he had duty. He found Delilah's face in the dark and kissed her gently on the cheek. Goodbye, girl. I'm sorry I let you down. Francis almost had a heart attack as yellow light filled the cave. At first he thought that it was the peace ray firing again, but as he lowered his shaking hands, the light resolved into the single circle of an electric torch. I did it, Faye shouted. I made it, Mr. Rawls. Good job. Yes, I know I don't need to shout, she said, still yelling. What the hell? Lance asked. How'd you get down here? Faye put the torch down and went to John Browning's still form. No time to explain. She grabbed Browning's hand and they both disappeared. So, I guess that means she made it? Francis rasped. He was dying of thirst and wished that Faye had dropped off some fresh water with that lamp. I thought this was out of her range. She just keeps getting better faster, Lance said proudly. That girl's got scary lots of power, best traveler I've ever seen, and getting stronger every day. The traveler reappeared, and Frances flinched, having never realized that her gray eyes actually reflected light in the dark like a cat. I'll explain in a minute. I'm at the nicest old grimoire. He's a reader, and he's putting the picture of up there right in my head. She latched onto Garrett's leg and took him next. What happens if she runs out of power while jumping back and forth? Francis asked nervously. She doesn't seem to be slowing down any. I don't know. You probably don't want to go last, though. Then Faye appeared, put her hand on Lance's head, and they were both gone. Francis felt the cold tug of fear in his gut. He didn't like the idea of magically zipping through a whole bunch of rock, especially in the hands of somebody who was so carefree. No reckless, and he actually screamed as Faye landed beside him, and the next thing he knew he flopped harmlessly into a pile of ash. Faye grinned at him. She was covered in soot from head to toe. Her wild hair was a mess of tangles and blackened sticks. She was completely in her element. This was no longer the scared little girl that they'd found such a short time ago. This was one shockingly gifted active. You can thank me later, she said as she vanished. Francis stood shakily. He still felt nauseous from swallowing and vomiting all that seawater. Everything around him was blasted and black. It took him a moment to realize that the ashen lump nearby was all that was left of the mansion he had grown up in. The sky was dark with smoke, and the afternoon sun was angry and red overhead. If he hadn't been already so emotionally drained, he might have started crying. In the light, he could finally see how bad his companions looked. Browning was pale as death, nearly blue even. He had been placed onto a stretcher by a few men in long yellow slickers, and they were putting him into the back of a truck. Garrett didn't look much better. Maddie's bullet had passed through his left arm, leaving a hole that you could put a finger through. He'd become feverish and incoherent over the last few hours. Lance was covered in black and yellow bruises, and his beard was matted with blood. Faye reappeared, this time with Delilah's body. Francis had to avert his eyes. Sorry, Mr. Sullivan said that she came up before he did. I'll be right back. Lance limped forward and draped a wool blanket over the corpse as Faye left. There were several dirigibles in the air. A flight of biplanes tore past, dozens of cars and even a few tractors were on the nearby hills. Cameras were snapping and film reels rolling as newsmen recorded the destruction. His home had been isolated, but there had been a lot of other nice houses in the area, and a small town on the other side of the forest now looked like a box of spilled matchsticks. The village was flattened except for a handful of broken buildings. The only things moving were the searchers. A man and a cowboy had approached and offered him a canteen of water. Francis sucked it down greedily. Cold water spilled down his neck. How long were we down there? He gasped when he was done. A day and a half, the man said. 
We've been combing this place the whole time. We've got a couple thousand volunteers and the army tearing it apart, but y'all are the first survivors we've found here in the Black Circle. His eyes were bloodshot. Everybody else for miles is dead. Then at the line, it just quit killing. We've got hundreds of people with uh, burns and injuries outside the circle, but not a single one killed. Francis had no idea how many people had lived in the area. The very thought sickened him. Sullivan and Fay appeared. The volunteers didn't so much as flinch from the display of magic. They'd seen too much already. Sullivan had his Browning automatic rifle over one shoulder and was still wearing the canvas vest filled with magazines. The haunted look in his eyes frightened Francis. An older black man took Francis by the arm and led him to the back of the truck. His voice was low so the volunteers wouldn't overhear. Come on, we need to get you knights out of here. He was familiar, but it had been a long time since he'd seen a member of the Grimoire elders. Mr. Rawls? He held up his left hand, showing his Grimoire ring. It's been a long time, Mr. Stuyvesant, and I see that you are a grown man now. Please call me Isaiah. Come, get in. We have much to discuss. Fay was excited, near giddy. She'd been the one that had saved everyone. She'd been the one brave enough to travel through the cliffs. She'd been the one that had found Mr. Rawls and led him to the spot where the mansion had stood. If Mr. Browning and Mr. Garrett lived, she knew that it was because of her. She was as big a hero as the brave adventurers on the radio programs. She'd never seen a motion picture, but she assumed that she was at least as brave as those people, too. She knew that Grandpa would be proud. If she could squeeze any more pride inside, she figured she would burst. Her power was stronger than she'd thought. It hadn't let her down. It was still there as much as ever. It wasn't just a well that she could dip a bucket into. It was a river. They'd all been loaded up into the back of the big farm truck, and it rumbled through the ash heading north, kicking up plumes of smoke from under the tires going back toward the city. She was pleased to see that so many folks had shown up from all over to help. Farmers had used their tractors to drag broken trees off what had been the road. They passed an army bulldozer pushing up dirt, looking for bodies inside what had been a house. After that was another truck like theirs, only all the charcoal things stacked into the back of it had once been people, and that made her real sad. The peace ray had burned them all. There were two new Grim Noir. Both of them were old men, nearly ancient by her standards. Mr. Rawls was the first black man that she'd ever actually spoken with, and he seemed really nice. He was a reader, like General Pershing, only he had a whole lot more power. His hair was white, and his skin was dark as night. His suit was covered in ash, and the fact that he'd jumped right in to help look for survivors made her like him even more. He wasn't afraid to get dirty. She was willing to bet that he was a very nice grandpa to his grandchildren. The other one was named Mr. Harkness. There was something about him that didn't sit right with her. He was old, too, but he dyed his hair black like he was trying to disguise his age, but he was too dried out and wrinkly to be vain. His eyes were cold, his face narrow, and he talked funny. He was European, not from the warm, loud, lap-a-lot side of Europe like Grandpa and his family, but from the cold, hard, serious side of Europe. Mr. Browning and Mr. Garrett were on litters in the middle of the floor, and he was kneeling between them, checking their vitals. Are you a healer? She shouted hopefully over the engine noise. Something like that, child. Not nearly that strong, though. Please, let me be. Mr. Harkness had seemed sullen ever since she had first spoken with him. The very first question out of his mouth was if Jane was alive. When she told him that Mr. Maddie had taken her away, he had given her the sternest glare like he held her personally responsible for her friend's loss. That wasn't fair at all. She'd killed an iron guard and shot Maddie and a couple of zombies and kept Francis from getting squished and kept Mr. Sullivan from getting a bullet in the back of the head. She'd done her very best and she wasn't even officially a grim noir yet. She'd like to see the fancy-pants European do any of that. Her friends were all staring out at the destruction, bouncing back and forth in the rusty truck bed. 
all except for Mr. Sullivan, who was watching something else, something far away in the distance where only he could see. Delilah's body had been wrapped in a blanket, and he knelt next to it protectively. She'd sworn to kill Mr. Maddy, but she figured it was going to be a race now between the two of them as to who got to kill him first. Mr. Sullivan looked real mad. The truck bed smelled like manure, and that made her feel a little more comfortable, like home. Either way, as long as Maddie died, that would make Grandpa and Delilah happy in heaven. Maybe they would kill him together. That seemed fair. A bunch of volunteers waved at them as they went past. They looked glad to see someone alive, and that gave them hope to keep digging with their shovels. Lance was talking to Mr. Rawls, telling him about what had happened. Apparently, Mr. Rawls was the one who had been assigned to come out here and take General Pershing's place. It seems like we've done this once before, doesn't it, Mr. Talon? Mr. Rawls said sadly, putting his arm over Lance's broad shoulders. Only this time the toll was much worse. Lance caught Faye giving him a curious look. Last time the Imperium found us, they burned my house down. That was three years ago in the attack where Black Jack got cursed. Isaiah and Christopher here were some of the knights sent to reinforce us, he explained. We tracked them down and killed a lot of them, but we lost some good men in the process. Poor Jane, always so gentle and naive. She volunteered to stay and minister to... Pershing, I told her it was too dangerous. Pershing was always getting into trouble. Look where that got her. And my granddaughter took a liking to this one, Mr. Harkness muttered, poking at Mr. Garrett's belly. Girl never had any sense. That made Faye angry. Mr. Garrett was a very nice man. He was unconscious, so she felt the need to stick up for him. Jane loves Dan a whole bunch, Harkness snorted. And this lump told me he'd protect her, keep her safe, fat. A lot of good you all did. Heinrich was sitting across from Mr. Harkness, one leg dangling over the side. When he lifted his face... Faye saw a look very similar to the one he'd had when he'd shot her in the heart with his luger. His voice was totally flat. Say that again, Scheisskopf, and say what happens. That's enough, Christopher, Mr. Rawls barked. These nights have been through too much. Mr. Harkness frowned and went back to his work. It isn't their fault your granddaughter was lost. We will get her back. Lance vowed. Heinrich and Francis nodded, so Faye did too. Sullivan was still staring off into space. Sadly, there are more important things at stake than the life of a single grim noir, Mr. Rawls said. General Pershing was keeping me informed about the Geotel situation. We must secure the last piece before it is too late. You were Pershing's men. Who did he entrust with the location? There was no response. Faye looked around. She knew, but she didn't think she was supposed to say. Look, I know he kept it secret. The general was paranoid for good reason, but he's gone now. The elders have sent me to fill his shoes, and there are some mighty big shoes to fill, believe me. I rode with him before most of you were born. I was a young buffalo soldier under his command, before either one of us was recruited by the society. I feel his loss as much as anyone, but you must understand how important this device is. Oh, I think we do, Francis said, gesturing at the scorched earth all around them. Buzzards weren't even circling because everything dead was too crispy to eat. Mr. Rawls' laughter was genuine. This... Francis, my boy, this is nothing. The Geotel cut a swath through Siberia that you can't even imagine. I was one of the Knights of New York, and we came this close. He held up thumb and forefinger, nearly touching. To losing the whole East Coast. When there were many pieces scattered and unknown, then Pershing's way made sense. But now that is only one. The single most important mission of the entire society is to find it. And destroy it. Lance said, of course. 
The elders were foolish when they thought they could keep it and maybe use it themselves one day. We should have smashed it to bits back in 08. If the general confided in any of you, we must know. The world depends on it. The truck reached the edge of the blast zone. The black ash just stopped in a perfectly straight line. On one side was death, and on the other there was yellow summer grass, seemingly undisturbed. Police cars were parked on both sides as the road reappeared. Soldiers hurried and moved wooden barricades out of the way as the driver shouted there were survivors to take to the hospital. The gearbox ground as the truck rolled forward. A police car got in front of them and turned on its siren. Reporters tried to take their picture as they went by, but the grim noir kept their heads down. The group was silent, and Faye thought about raising her hand, but she hesitated. General Pershing had shown her exactly where to go to find South Under. The only thing standing between the chairman and the deadliest device ever conceived is a single grim noir, who probably doesn't even know that his old companions have all been slaughtered. We must get to him before it is too late, Mr. Rawls pleaded. You are not betraying the general. You are fulfilling his final mission. Sullivan started to laugh. It was a low chuckle at first, but then it turned into a full-belly laugh. He was at the rear of the truck, and the shocks creaked under his weight as he turned. You all are too rich. He had to wipe his eyes with his sleeve. Damn near self-righteous as the chairman. Pershing told you, Mr. Rawl said incredulously. Because he knew better than to trust anyone else. Yeah, I know how to find Bob Southunder. You must tell us then. Pershing gave me a job. I intend to do it. I'll find Southunder and the last piece. That's my duty, not yours. You can't hope to do this on your own. You're just mad with grief, son, Mr. Rawls said. Maybe, but that don't change nothing. If the... Chairman finds out where it is. He'll send his iron guard against you, Mr. Harkness said coldly. I'm counting on it, and when they come, I'll be there waiting, Sullivan stated. Faye could tell he meant it. If there was anything she knew about Mr. Sullivan, he was a man who kept his promises or who died trying. Mr. Rawls was upset. This isn't a game. Tell me where South Under is. That's an order, Grimnoir. Sullivan paused, took Pershing's ring from his pinky and tossed it into the truck bed. It rolled to a stop next to Mr. Browning. I never took no oath. Mr. Rawls' thick white eyebrows scrunched together as he glared at Mr. Sullivan. Faye could almost feel the power crackle through the air around them. If Sullivan wouldn't talk, then he'd just pick the truth out himself. She'd felt how strong Mr. Rawls was. He'd been able to talk to her mind through hundreds of feet of solid rock. But Sullivan was stronger than any old ocean cliff. Unbreakable, he closed his eyes as Mr. Rawls tried to force his way into his head, a look of terrible concentration creasing the big man's square face. Get out of my brain! Sullivan said. She turned to Mr. Rawls. Sweat was rolling down his face and veins were popping out in his forehead. The whole truck creaked as Sullivan stood up. He calmly drew his forty-five, took a magazine from his pocket, stuck it into the grip, and racked the slide. Raising the gun, he aimed it at Mr. Rawls. I said, get out of my brain or I'll spread yours all over the road. The reader gasped as he let go. What are you? Angry. Sullivan put his gun back into the military flap holster on his belt. He turned to Heinrich. See to Delilah. She'd want to be buried in a place with a pretty view. Have somebody say some words. I think she'd like that. I will, Heinrich promised. He addressed them all. I can't come with you to save Jane. Tell Dan I'm real sorry when he wakes up. Maybe we'll meet again and maybe we won't. Faye, thank you kindly for getting us out. Delilah told me she took a real liking to you. Sullivan nodded at her and Faye felt herself blush. Good luck. What are you going to do? Lance asked. My duty, 
Sullivan nodded once and stepped off the back of the speeding truck. That was part 42 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pincho. That's it for this installment of the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to artist Sam Kennedy for joining us to talk about his creative process. This is Bain Books contributing editor Gray Reinhardt, and it has been my pleasure to be your host for today's podcast. Please join us next time on the Bain Free Radio Hour, where the heart of science fiction and fantasy beats strong.